Welcome to the third episode of Sauropod. I'm Nayantara, and you will be hearing me and Sahil having an amazing discussion with Amy Joyce, who is a senior lecturer at the Department of Social Anthropology at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland. Amy is a social anthropologist working on history and conflict. Her work in Poland focused on borderlands, hauntology, neighborliness, and religious plurality. Her work in Ireland is focused on how conflict and post-conflict relationships are understood and explored through heritage sites. She is the chair of the Cost Action Tracks, which stands for Trace as a Research Agenda for Climate Change Technology Studies and Social Justice. You'll hear her talk about that later on in the episode. And guys, the work is so cool. So here it is. Enjoy. I have been at um, a very weird event this morning, so I'm now currently concerned I'm cursed. <laughs> oh, yes. What was this mad uh, ritual or whatever? The Bury Man Parade. It is something from about the 1700s in South Queen's Ferry. Uh, basically, it's a guy. It happens on the second Friday of August every year. And the idea they think is probably to drive out evil spirits and maybe to give good luck to fishermen. But it's basically this man who puts on a full woolen outfit and then is covered in burrs. And they walk him all around the town um, taking a little sip of whiskey. And it starts at like nine o'clock in the morning and goes until six o'clock in the evening. So it, like every kind of 15 minutes he gets a sip of whiskey. <laughs> I came back and I was chatting to the coffee shop guys who are in underneath me and I was like, like I feel really unscottish, but surely that's too much whiskey for a day. <laughs> <laughs> well Yeah. You know, it reminds me a bit of but yeah, but you know, it's like over there as well. So it's like kind of this mix syncretic Hindu Buddhist, mm-hmm. sometimes Muslim possessions that happen in this temple and like Basically, the guy has to get totally wasted in order to be medium. And then... I do think I might have read some of this stuff. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Well, there's not all of them, one of them. But then, also, like, one of the like one of the things that happens... So, there's, there's someone who, you know, has to get wasted, and then they become a medium. But then, there are the mediums who then get possessed, and yeah. you know, then these spirits come and are like, I want to drink copious amounts of alcohol and smoke every single thing that you have. Oh, and so yeah. this guy, you know, usually I think the man, you know, he's just there and he's just like drinks and smokes. And when he's not possessed, is absolutely fine. And so. Yeah. They, like they have this with a uh, voodoo. Uh, Gina Ulysses, uh, Gina Athena Ulysses had a whole thing about, you know, the same thing of when you become uh, kind of, occupied by a spirit you can drink as much as you want but when the spirit leaves you're actually fine like fascinating (laughs) as well I mean I I don't know I when I settled in the UK I was like I need to find things to love about this country (laughs) I've got folk horror the NHS (laughs) the civil war weirdly (laughs) 
when I moved here, I remember like people going on about queuing because I didn't understand the concept of queuing. Irish people aren't into that shit. <laughs> and, um, and I remember like getting in so much trouble every time I jumped a queue. And I was like, you can only believe in queuing to this extent if your life has been fair. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> the whole discourse around queuing at the Queen's funeral was insane <laughs> to me. Like, this is your big takeaway? Actually, we also got like three separate emails that day from our university telling us not to say anything about the royal family. I like that they knew. They knew. They were like, look, they all were educated here, so we need you all to shut the hell up and just have no opinions about this, please. And I'm like, there have been, there's a cost of living crisis for the last two years, which you've managed to send one single email. Oh my God. I'm getting three fucking emails. I like, I had a, I have a first year student who came up to me after a lecture and told me she was going to be made fucking homeless. <gasps> like, you know, there's a genuine disaster happening in, in the UK that like is affecting students in such a specific way. And the university sends one fucking email about that across two years and yet can somehow manage three emails about how we should behave after the death. And I was just like, this is just Britain in a fucking nutshell. <laughs> mm, you know, I that's what... didn't fully understand it when I was living there. Because, like, I was there for, what, Will and Kate's wedding, the Olympics, some <laughs> jubilee of some sort. She had a million of them. Um, and it was like, oh, this is kind of fun. Like, the whole city. I've I've never seen a city do anything like this, right? Yeah. And then living in Sri Lanka and now living back in the States, looking at London, it's just like you ridiculous people. Like, you insane human beings. Like, what are you doing? (laughs) Especially everything that's happening this year. It's like you're in a state of crisis and there's like coordination and everyone cares about Camilla and like, what's your face and like, who's wearing what hat? Like, what is wrong with you? But I did want to get to one thing, which is your color. You chose a color and we're all showing up. And this is as close to forest green as I could get. Yeah. Uh, I'm wearing a sorry at 7 a.m. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I just, yeah. What's your color? Why'd you choose it? You know, I, it was, it popped into my head, which was the main re- reason I chose it. But then afterwards I was like, why was like forest green is quite specific as yeah. a color. And um, I was like, oh, it's because the room, like the spare room in my house, that's also my office, is a forest green room. So I'm not in it now because it faces out onto the the street. So there's lots uh-huh. of noise. Right. I live in a busy street with lots of sirens. <laughs> but uh, I realized that like, so basically I'm you know diversion here but um one of the nicest things about moving up to Scotland for me to take up a job here and it was you know it kind of was a break in my life as well because I'd lived in London for quite a while and before mm-hmm. that Ireland um one of the nicest things was I could suddenly afford possibly in the future to buy a home <laughs> the dream. and I eventually did oh. um and it's one of the weirdest like proudest things I've done because you know I had to save for it and I don't have that kind of family money background that could help with it right and so I love this little space so deeply um I I think the act of homemaking is a can be a really radical kind of uh act there's a really beautiful quotes about this um there's a 
Deborah Levy's book, The Cost of Living, mm. the the second in her living autobiographical series, she talks about like being a woman who's making a home just for herself rather than for a family or for and kind of the way in which that counteract some of the kind of patriarchal messages you hear your whole life as a woman and one of the first rooms I finished was that little forest green room oh. um, and it was where I wrote my book and it's where I lived out the pandemic <laughs> you know doing online teaching which is a fucking nightmare <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's actually this incredibly creative space for me where you know things that I'm proud of like the network that I co-chair, I chair and, and work with all these phenomenal colleagues in, you know, that network was born in that room over mm -hmm. Zoom calls with friends um, and other academics. So I think actually maybe Forest Green is a really good, it's a good space for, for anthropology for me. Amazing. That's amazing. <laughs> that's so like, and that's also just like what this podcast wants to be about, right? Solidarity and creativity and collaboration and community. Oh, I love that. Perfect. Because that's like Amazing. kind of better than what we've come up with for our colors. They're just <laughs> like, this is a fun color. It brings me joy. <laughs> I mean, as I said, it was very much so a, like, this is the straightaway color I thought of. It also helps that you can't really tell in this light, but I'm quite ginger and forest green is a good color for me. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm surprised that you're not wearing a more forest green and you're, you've veered towards yeah. the color. It turns out that um, I mainly own like forest green jumpers and today is a shockingly hot 18 degrees in Scotland. <laughs> <laughs> oh no. So I'm in one of my light jumpers today, <laughs> um, which apparently I only have an olive green. So I did put on a forest green jumper and as I was setting this up, I was like, I am going to sweat through this whole call. <laughs> So you get kind of olive instead. <laughs> Perfect. There's also hints of forest in the in your background. So we got it. The whole the mm -hmm. atmosphere vibe is foresty green. That is true. That is true. You've got forest green. <laughs> My only other forest green item was a handbag. And I was like, I could just like sit the handbag here on the <laughs> I mean, I am also sitting on this. So. Oh, we've got oh, like a no. forest green. We've yeah. even it in our lives, I think, just in weird places. I mean, it's a good color. It's a, it's a nature indoors, outdoors color, you know? <laughs> Thank you for choosing a color that would force me to put on a sari, however, haphazardly. Also, I think the entire you have to show what's on your sari. Yeah. yeah. Oh, oh, this is, it's actually very cool. So I don't know what any of this means. I'll see if I can. Okay, there's sound. Um, okay. There are these little stick figures. It's like, oh, it's beautiful. And it's like animals and a little person with a spear. It's just, and like like a little hut. And also the comps, the, the band color is beautiful. Oh. The combination, the like gold and, and oh, it's so nice. Antara, where did you get this? Did I, you get this? <laughs> okay, I got this in Delhi so, with Nellies. So I was going to say, those stick figures are actually... Um, they're drawings by the Beale people, and so it's an indigenous type of. Oh. Uh, uh, I mean, it's, they're they're really famous, and they, you know, of course, they all symbolize things like the crops and the like times of years and stuff. But it's a yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, I think I think I was told the history when I bought it, and I was like, I'm gonna remember this, and I think just fall out of my head. So I'll have to write this down because I really love it so much. But yeah, it, it feels like a very it's. Anthropo anthropological adjacent or yeah. <laughs> it's also it's also just beautiful which is also acceptable yeah. 
Every so often I'm like, mm, maybe I'll leave academia and become an interior designer. And then I remember that you don't get to decide what other people do in their own homes. And I'd probably just end up painting people's homes in like terrible shade of grey all the time. <laughs> so I'm like, oh, academia it is. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's such an interesting um, thought because I feel like I've heard that from so many people who have very strong design aesthetics is that they're all like I wish I could do this but then no one wants my aesthetic except for me like it's not a sellable thing unless I think actually unless you like go into the luxury market right I was just about to say like you're like a designer which is different so you know I I I have an acquaintance actually we don't even talk anymore so I don't even know him anymore (laughs) but he used to be a hairdresser who just had very rich clients and somehow got into this job where he just became a shopping consultant for clothes and basically would have rich people who knew rich people whom he knew come to him and say, dress me, and he would take them shopping. And they would just wear whatever he would tell them to buy. So sometimes think it's good that I don't make over a certain amount of money because if I was very wealthy, I think I would be a terrible person. <laughs> <laughs> Me too, but I, I kind of want to be just to like experience like how terrible could I be? Like how horribly could I just like exist in the world? Because I feel like, okay, as a woman, as a minority woman in a space, you know, you're very conscious of, like, showing up in this way. And it's like, yeah. you just want to show up in the way that, like, white men get to show up everywhere. Just, like, bring my worst self. I mean, I think also, like, so I actually, my whole fa- my my parents are both artists. And, you know, two of my three brothers are artists. And myself and my sister are very sensible. <laughs> like, she's a veterinarian and I'm an academic, you know? <laughs> um, and um, I think, like, because we grew up with that, like, you know, kind of very arty background, um, I do think, like, a lot of it is just, like, I would love to live that lifestyle a little bit, but um, I'm just a little bit too, kind of, um, a little bit too much of a Marxist. <laughs> That's the problem, right? You know, I can do it from the William Morris perspective, you know? <laughs> you know like that's how I think of the flat is that I'm making like a beautiful useful thing that's what my sense is but I think once the use value escapes it my like internal clock starts to panic well you know this is just because you I mean I haven't read this the the book you mentioned the cost of living which yes because I think that you know like for me I had always had this idea that oh actually I thought I'm going to eventually at some point get a PhD move to Delhi teach at this one university, Jawaharlal Nehru University, which was like the, I don't want to say it's the SOAS of India, but it was like the Berkeley of India, perhaps. Um, but very, yeah, you know, very Marxist, socialist, but like, it's because, you know, I grew up kind of, even though our family was a bit like, you know, kind of like, oh, these like annoying academics, you know, with the real intelligentsia that are like, oh, falling apart in our decrepit uh, houses. But, um, but you know, like, there was this idea that, oh, you could be an academic, have infos, but also, oh, you know, like, all these people, they, they had, like, beautiful houses, mm-hmm. you know, made art, taught, or, you know, led social movements, of course, like, yeah. with backgrounds at some point. Um, but 
It was a doable thing. And I think around the time I started at SOAS, you know, I had friends who were teaching at JNU. And I just, all of them were like, I can't afford to live. Mm -hmm. I can't afford to rent. Uh, the right wings, the you know, the right wing student movement is is taking over the university now. Like the whole university has been taken over. I don't know if you guys know, but last week, the, so the government has taken over and they're literally shutting down the his the basically the history library that houses a lot of like um, you know documentation and all kinds of stuff. So it's yeah, we won't start talking about India, but um, but it's yeah, interesting. That's... You mentioned. You know, kind of like being an academic and being sensible, and like I, you know, I, I don't know if it was recorded, but I, I kind of wanted to ask you, but you know, you said you had the student come to you recently who was like, mm -hmm. you know, I'm literally going to be made homeless. Yeah. And I had a similar thing with my supervisor who said, well, that's not my problem. I would really love to hear how. No. And what your response was, and what yeah. you know, what kind of situation that puts you in. Um, yeah, like what is? How do you feel? being in that position right because you do like in one sense you kind of have power mm -hmm. in this situation compared to a student but like you genuinely don't have any power exactly. in the institution i mean so i think there's like two factors to this answer the first is like the, what you were saying about kind of this this transforming position of academia as a career in the world um and i have a really close friend who's a civil service servant and uh, recently we had a conversation about these high prestige jobs and how part of the kind of drive in the UK around people like consultants and junior doctors going on strike for the first time in like a long time or or, or that strike being a big cultural moment. Um, it's because a lot of these jobs that we think of as incredibly high prestige, like medicine, like academia, while the prestige remains, the actual uh, wages in those jobs are no longer prestigious wages. Mm -hmm. So you have people who maybe, let's say, went to become a GP. And, you know, kind of two generations ago, that job would have meant that you could send your kids to private school and your partner didn't have to ever work. That is not what those wages get you anymore. Mm -hmm. And it's a really similar thing has happened in academia where, you know, if you look at the professors in the kind of departments we're in, they have these stunningly beautiful houses with like gorgeous pieces of artwork, you know, um, and it's because when they came through academia, their wages got them a lot more than what your wages get. Plus the fact that there's been this casualization in the UK and in the US. And I, I know from, you know, Poland and Ireland and other places where I work, it's, it's the same. So I'm assuming this is a somewhat global reality, mm -hmm. which means that not only are the wages getting you less than they used to get you, but also casualization has become so endemic that unlike, you know, kind of two generations of academics ago where you did your kind of service of a couple of years of, of casualized labor and then you walk, you went into a permanent job. Casualized labor is becoming your career now, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. so I have been incredibly fortunate in my trajectory in that I was only in a, <laughs> in a casualized post for uh, five years. But that was six different contracts, you know, which is wild mm -hmm. to think of. Yeah. Um, and I'm one of the incredibly fortunate people. You know, I have a trajectory that is really unusual to have anymore. I, you know, got a permanent post um, five years out of my my PhD and, and I'm now a senior lecturer. Oh. And I'm, you know, that's kind of nine years out of my PhD. 
that that's almost unheard of mm-hmm. as a trajectory. And in fact, within my PhD cohort, there's only two of us who are in that position out of a cohort yeah. of 16. Yeah. So, you know, that kind of says a lot. Um, so that's the first side of it is that like the reality of what academia is now. Um, so I don't know if I'd say you have less power because you still have that cultural prestige and mm. you still have that kind of, you know, social position. You are still essentially in a job where you stand in front of a room full of 300 students and they listen to you. (laughs) 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 Like, that's the thing that sometimes blows my brain up a little bit. I look out into an audience of first years and they're taking everything I say incredibly seriously. And I'm like, oh, my God, I am shaping you as adults. (laughs) And I know I'm not like the only thing. I know I'm a very small percentage of what's shaping them, but I'm still a percentage. And that's a bit intense, you know. Um, I don't know about you, but I sort of still feel like, so we met during our master's. I was like, what, 23? We were in our mid-20s, maybe? Yeah, I was like 23, 24. Yeah. And like, I still feel like that was maybe a few years ago. Do you know what I mean? Like, I still feel like an idiot young person. Weirdly, in the last two years, I've started to feel real old. (laughs) and I think it's I think it's teaching first years that does it to me like they are such babies like and and I don't mean that derogatorily I mean mean, like they are such brand new adults you know coming into the world they're coming from a totally different like position to the world that I have and I think it just makes you feel real old (laughs) real quick um I, I said once jokingly that I was a spooky bitch and they all laughed in like absolute horror that I had referenced something that meant that I wasn't in my 40s. <laughs> I was like, oh, this is terrified laughter. This isn't like, you know, this is like this woman shouldn't be saying something that implies she's useful. <laughs> um, but yeah, oh, so no. I suppose I do think that like, in terms of maybe the finances of where we're at, it's not the same as where we were at 20 years ago, 10 years ago even. But I think in terms of the kind of prestige and social um, capital, we still have a lot of that as academics. Um, and I think that's where there's maybe a really growing divide between kind of students and lecturers in universities. Um, you know, increasingly students are seen as customers and that makes a massive difference to their experience of a university. So, you know, universities take on more students than they can legitimately house. That is a major issue. Yeah. Almost all universities in the UK are doing it. Mm-hmm. You know, there was a big article in the paper yesterday about how this is the first year where maybe kind of a quarter of students are going to live at home in the UK, which was a really common thing to do in Ireland. By the way, I, I lived at home for my first two years. Um, but was really unusual in the UK for a very long time. So, you know, universities are increasingly seeing students as revenue streams. So, you know, increasing that revenue stream happens without thinking about how are you going to house that revenue stream? How are you going to make sure that they have mental health services that they increasingly need because they've just gone through a global pandemic that has you know, had a massive impact on young people's mental health. How are you going to make sure that they have enough teaching staff, that they're getting adequate, like, support? And and all of these seem to be secondary concerns to bringing in the money. And that's how you end up in a situation where in an incredibly elite university, you can have a student come up and say, I'm going to be made homeless and I have no idea what to do, you know, Mm. which is, I mean, this child is 17, you know, this is, this is a horrific 
like it's a concern they shouldn't have in the kind of university they're in given the cost of being in that university given the kind of financial background of that university Mm -hmm. you should not have a 17 year old child coming up to a lecturer saying I'm going to be made homeless that shouldn't even be a concern and so essentially I just use shame (laughs) Um, and I said you know okay well look I can't give you an immediate answer but I'm going to work on this and I was like here are a couple of jobs that are available in the town that tend to come with accommodation so look into those but I'm also going to look into seeing what I can do for you um so I kind of emailed everyone in the department and was pretty much like this is the thing that's happening it's one of our students anybody have any leads on a place where they can stay even temporarily and then I thought mm, I'm not just going to do that and I emailed a dean <laughs> like, Amazing. Pretty good. yeah well you know but saying like this is an embarrassment to us yeah so I mean it resolved itself but it resolved itself because I had an idea of how to access all those resources and my student didn't. Right. Um, and it just kind of, it's it's been a, it was a real moment for me this year where I was like, oh, we are really fucking up, you know? Yeah. I mean, also, sorry, like, I know, I know there are other things that you want to ask, but like, yeah. you know, I'd be interested in your perception maybe of like, is it, I'm trying to think of the right way to phrase this, but like the student came to you. <laughs> right. How? What is the sort of emotional support <laughs> load for other people in your department? Do you guys work. You guys work together as a team. Like, you know. Um, I'm going to give you. A, I'm going to give you a more kind of generic answer to this for reasons. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wait, we have. We also have a system where we bleep out. Names of things. So if if you say anything and you decide actually take that out, you know. Okay. Well, I'll give you my generic answer and then I'll reconsider it. (laughs) Um, Academia in the UK is still in a position where predominantly younger female staff do the emotional labor. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is particularly so if those younger female staff are women of color. Um, You know, uh, so it's a thing that has been acknowledged kind of broadly that this is an issue in the sector i mean it's one of the things that our union supposedly is campaigning on is is gender parity um but i think there's kind of i think it's not just about kind of personalities within the departments but i think it's also about the structures of departments and how those work um and again i feel like i have to constantly be like deeply marxist (laughs) please yes Um, but you know I was reflecting on this because I know that we said now um, one of the things we'd like to talk about is kind of PhD supervision. Yeah. Um, So I was kind of reflecting on that. But this is part of the same answer, which is that the structure of academia, it it encourages exploitation. Uh You know, Uh Um, the kind of the 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 PhD pathway is still very much so reminiscent of a kind of medieval guild model where, you know, you're an apprentice to some master and you kind of rely almost wholly on that person as a kind of pathway into a career. Um, And while there has been some kind of attempts, I mean, one thing that has definitely changed in my period of time in academia is jobs for mates is a lot less common in most places. There's still certain universities where we all know it happens. (laughs) But um, in most universities, that idea of having a professor who has a favorite, who he wants to get a job, 
that's become less common. Um, you know, there's been better HR structures built to ensure kind of fairer hiring practices, but that doesn't affect the kind of hierarchy of departments. Right. Um, so like one, I think the best way of thinking about this is I applied for a promotion this year and I got it. Oh, congratulations. <laughs> Senior lecturer. <laughs> oh, that happened this year. Amazing. Yeah, it just it just at the beginning of this month, but it was uh, a really interesting ah, breaking news on the podcast. Like <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> my uh, my web my you know presence on the web page hasn't been updated with it yet, and I'm like, is it like really self centered to ask them to do that? <laughs> no, the answer is oh, no, not at all. Yeah, well. So, yeah, so, but the whole process, I think, really demonstrates the kind of structural problems of universities, right? Which is that you are meant to apply for promotion under four headings. And this is similar in most UK universities. They're maybe slightly differently named. Uh, education, research, impact or outreach, and then service, which is a fantastic thing that universities have, this idea of service. Um, and service, I think, uh it basically refers to what admin roles you've done in the university, how mm-hmm. you've kind of served the university outside of just being an academic. Um, and so the rule is generally in most places that you need to get an excellent in two of them and a good in the other two to be promoted. Okay. So should be fairly straightforward, right? <laughs> um, except when I get this form, it's like, please tell us in a narrative how you are an excellent and exceptional academic. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> I feel like as a woman, I definitely haven't been rewarded for speaking about myself like that. <laughs> and I don't think I've ever been like really trained <laughs> as to how I write this down. And um, I've been thinking about this and I'm on the train with a colleague who's, uh, he's an Indian man and he's like, oh no, same, same. <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> like academic of color in the UK. You know, that kind of talk normally gets you called arrogant or like, you know, so, so yeah, so it's, you know, it's, it's a bit of a struggle and I am incredibly fortunate in that I have two senior male colleagues who I go to them and I say, I'm finding this really hard. And they both say they'll read it for me and basically manify, white manify, like, you know, speak. Which turns out to be really necessary because I send it in and one of them sends it back and is like, at one point he circles something is like, I'm not sure why you would write this down. <laughs> it was some rant about like the deep inherent unfairness of universities to women. I was like, yeah, probably don't need to include that in my promotion document. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, so they, so they both uh, write, you know, they both give me feedback. I rewrite the whole thing. I submit it to my head of school, who's, uh, you know, we're a number of departments in a school. He's a white English dude. And um, the first thing he says when I come for my, like, appointment that you have to have with him, he's like, well, this is just an excellent application. Like, you know, you've done a really good job with this. And because I have no control over my mouth in certain circumstances, <laughs> I go, I fucking hated it. That's a white English man. He's kind of unused to <laughs> <laughs> this level of emotional honesty, I believe. <laughs> so, so he's like, oh, right. And I was like, yeah, no, this is a really good example of how promotion favors white men. And he was like, oh, right. Um, How? 
<laughs> I'm, like, I'm like, well, you know, it's this way of writing about yourself that you're you're not rewarded for doing as a woman or as a person of color. You know, it's a way of writing about ourselves that we don't generally have. Like, I at no point have I ever written something about myself, which is all about my amazing, excellent, brilliant novel work that, you know, is world leading and deserves. Also, you need to get two references, one of whom is an international world leading academic and the other of whom is a national world world leading academic. And I'm like, hmm, who defines world leading? Because it's a bunch of dudes in a room, most of my references. And also, by the way, that's not how I do academia. I do academia collaboratively. Most of the people who can talk to my work are people at the same stage of their careers as me Mm -hmm. spread across Eastern Europe or Central Europe, because that's where I work. You know, I'm not going to be able to get a very famous North American academic to write me a piece because I, I don't realistically want to work with people who are super super big star names i want to i want to work collaboratively with people doing work that's you know work i'm interested in um so yeah so you know he's kind of a little bit taken aback by this and um then i'm like you know i was told to apply last year and i didn't and he was like oh why and i was like well because my book had been delayed by covid so my book is like two and a half years delayed because of the oh, whole wow. COVID stuff like I finished writing it in 2020 it's coming out this <laughs> oh my gosh <laughs> oh yeah yeah it took like your book as well <laughs> it took like 18 months to get the references in and then there was this like massive delay to copy editing because of there's like um... a shortage of copy editors and then actually getting things on press is still on a like backlog from printing over the COVID period so I was like and I didn't do it because I didn't have my book and he was like well you know this is the thing a lot of female academics say, you know, a lot of male academics are really willing to just like take the risk, whereas women really like to get all their ducks in a row. And I'm like, that's because we don't get rewarded for taking the risk. Oh, my God. <laughs> and it's this, it's this kind of thing where you're like, ah, oh, this is this structure doesn't even recognize its its problems. Yeah. you know well, it can, right? like, oh, because if yeah. it does, it'll cease to exist. There was a very, very interesting discussion about kind of that question of representation and decolonizing and what that means in anthropology. Um, And one of the things that I have been increasingly uncomfortable with is this idea of like, actually sometimes representation can be problematic Mm -hmm. because you become proof of meritocracy, Mm -hmm. you know, instead of you standing out as an example of how systemically you shouldn't be there, and you are very fortunate and very lucky, and you've had a lot of things in your background that have let you jump those systemic problems, mm-hmm. you become the shining light of how academia is actually a meritocracy and anybody can get anywhere if they're just smart enough, which we know is a lie. What was shocking about this was that who's <laughs> this very senior male academic, you know, professor kind of, he's an emeritus professor now. He came up to me afterwards and he was like, you know what, thank you for saying that. That articulates something I've really also been struggling with recently, which is that like, I'm, you know, I am like demonstration of how class doesn't matter in the UK when it absolutely does matter. You know? <laughs> and he was like, you know, and you know, yeah, you know, you have to maybe be a little bit more open about how the things that got you to the place you got to and 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 all the privileges that got you there. And you know, that's also part of the representation question. Um, but I think it's like one of those kind of shocking moments for a lot of people where there is a kind of bubbling, I would say, 
discomfort amongst a lot of academics who maybe don't come from a traditional background Mm -hmm. but it's really hard to articulate that discomfort as anything other than a kind of personal anxiety when in fact I think it's a really honest response to being made emblematic of a kind of ideology that you disagree with you know so becoming like an emblem of this notion of meritocracy when you know that's not true and how often you end up having to silence your kind of annoyance with that idea because it, there's there's no space for it within the structures we're part of, you know? No, I mean, I think... Sorry, not sorry. I, I think you had something to say. I, I, no, 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 go ahead. I have like 50 billion things. I'm like, ah! Oh. I know, I know. No, go ahead, go ahead. So like, um, I mean, on the one hand, like I think, you know, I have sort of like linked questions because... You know, what you just described, I think, is a choice, right? Like, you are making a choice about your praxis because mm. we know, you know, other, like, women, you know, working class or people of color, whatever, academics who make a very different choice for different reasons to mm-hmm. the, you know, um, kind of emblem of, like, you know, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and maybe they actually all go work in fields all the time. But, um, <laughs> But uh, it's a choice. So I really love to hear a bit about, you know, you've talked now in several different ways about how community building is part of your praxis as an academic. And it'd be really great to hear about, you know, what that, how that happens, what are the different things you're doing? And, you know, how is, how is that resonating with, Mm. you know, your work uh, and and with others? Sure. Um, I mean, I listened to the first episode you guys had, um, and it was really fascinating and slightly depressing. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> um, but one of the things that really struck me was this kind of talk about PhD cohorts and, and what they mean, right? Um, because I think a really kind of, I think basically who I am as an academic was massively shaped by my PhD cohort and my PhD supervision setup. Mm -hmm. So I was in Goldsmiths, which has a name within the UK as being a particularly radical, you know, uh, very political economy place to do anthropology. And I mean, the reason I went there was mainly because I wanted to work in Europe and it was one of the few kind of centers of, you know, we work on white people eventually (laughs) in (laughs) British academia at the time. I know that has radically changed since then. Um, but also we've had this this really cool kind of political economy system that I was really into. Sorry to interrupt you, but by the by, while we were at SOAS, there was a an anthropology professor who denigrated a PhD from someone from Goldsmiths that was amazing on Ridgely Road, I think, as saying, oh, now people can do anthropology on whatever they want. Hey, who was what? <laughs> I didn't hear about this. I mean, everyone at, like, all the department folks the professors hated goldsmiths anytime they were like where did you do your masters i would say goldsmiths and they're like oh oh caroline loved it by the way caroline's so like oh my sympathies my deepest no like there was like an inherent competition between the two departments to be like the most radically left in london you know and it's like yeah it's definitely goldsmiths because they're not fucking trying they don't have to announce to everyone like we're progressive they care about other people no well like you say that the first week of my phd i was given a badge that just said radical (laughs) okay 
it is like an arts college. Like you have to stuck up in my office. Like it's such a like perfect encapsulation of like the weirdness of British universities. <laughs> anyway, I'm sorry, I derailed the conversation. Please please No, no, um, no, totally. So yeah, so when I went to Goldsmiths, it was a really interesting combination of people. So myself and uh Nye, we did our masters together and I stayed on to do a PhD. Mm-hmm. And when I started my PhD, I was supervised by Frances Pine, who is a phenomenally brilliant woman and an incredibly kind supervisor who has had a kind of commitment to trying to supervise as many women and people from Eastern Central Europe she could, <laughs> like actively. Um, and, you know, because she worked in Poland and, and she saw that as an important thing to do, that you weren't mm-hmm. just going to replicate what British academia looked like. You were going mm-hmm. to, like, bring in people who maybe wouldn't be there otherwise. Um, and so she was phenomenal and she's like, she's still a good friend of mine. When I go to stay in London, I tend to stay in her house. (laughs) You know, I am, I am incredibly fortunate because of the relationship I had with my supervisor, which again, if we're talking about meritocracy and luck, there's one in the box of luck, right? Right. That sometimes you just get very lucky with a supervisor. Um, but maybe come back to that because actually, yeah, maybe flag that for something, something to come back to. I have questions. Yes. Yeah, one of the good things about that is that, you know, I, I stay in her house now, but I never would have done that when I was a PhD student. Like there was a very interesting kind of she was very. Yeah, yeah we'll come back to that. <laughs> so I was supervised by her. Uh, there's also people like Victoria Goddard there. Victoria Goddard, you know, she did the first year course and she started with colonialism at the beginning. I was like she was like anthropology. So first of all, colonialism, <laughs> you know, which seems like not a wild thing to do now but in like 2008 2009 mm-hmm. it was very unusual for departments to start there um you had people like David Graeber there teaching at the time you had people like Nicholas de Geneva like that was the kind of um but mainly the most important thing when I was there was the leadership of the department was almost entirely female mm-hmm. which is really unusual um and that did change over time but then on top of that my PhD cohort was almost entirely female <laughs> So we had this real kind of weirdly matriarchal setup <laughs> in the department where like, you know, as you were working on your, you like in the, the room, there'd be like children there because people were bringing their kids in with, in with them. And that was totally acceptable. And that meant that academic staff would bring their kids in with them. And, you know, there was there was a very particular atmosphere in the department where it was both rigorously intellectual and also incredibly inclusive of the idea that you have a life outside of that intellectual rigor. Um, which I think now I recognize as an incredibly rare experience. I've never heard that. I've never heard that. You know, myself and one of my best friends and collaborators, (laughs) Magda Buczyk, who's in Berlin now, um, we were talking about this recently. We were like, it really was a little bit of a golden star thing, right? Like, you know, we didn't take it seriously at the time, but the fact that, like, it was this incredibly, uh, incredibly, like, disparate group of people in terms of where they come from um but like quite a lot I think kind of in terms of ethnicity and race not so much because that's an ongoing issue in anthropology right but at least in terms of kind of class background gender background sexuality all of these other things probably ethnicity too you you know there, there was a lot of diversity within that group of people in doing their PhD at the time. White people can be ethnic too. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Somebody who has to teach ethnicity, race, and citizenship (laughs) third years, this is a very, like, painful... My, you know, my my partner is half Polish. (laughs) And, um, you know, and 
grew up in the U.S. and uh, it was the first time that he'd ever seen the category white other. <laughs> As somebody who still gets to mark the category white Irish in the UK, I can, I can I think the ethnicity conversation is fascinating. <laughs> I actually put down my every chance I get. I put down every new GP appointment. I put down, you know, all my ethnicities, and they're like, "Yes, but are you Indian, Pakistani?" You know, and and I'm like, "No, these are my ethnicities," <laughs> and then like. <laughs> I do have um I do have a friend who's Puerto Rican and uh he's he was talking recently and he was like, you know there's no ethnicity marker for me in the UK. And I was like, what? He's like, yeah, no, like my my ethnicity doesn't exist in the UK, but apparently white Irish does, and I'm like, I'm so sorry. <laughs> for what it's worth, my birth certificate says I'm white because at that time there was only black and white. <laughs> Wait, in the US? It was Texas. Oh, okay. <laughs> I think there was also, quote unquote, Hispanic, but I, I'm not sure. I think it always was like black and white. And so, and South Asians yeah. were acting to white until 2000 when they got wise and, you know, did the census thing. No, that you should have stuck with white. I mean, come on. I mean, they still have the same birth certificate. It's just the same white, but it doesn't give me the other prevalence. <laughs> I kind of want to go back and see what my birth certificate says because I was born in Iowa. Like, I can't imagine. <laughs> They had Sri Lankan on it. <laughs> I love the idea. I love the idea that only certain parts of the states have a racial category. <laughs> but anyway, I mean, you're talking about this amazing uh, cohort. So, cohort. That sounds like a dream. Like, see, no, I was like, it really was. And it was it was so exceptional. And we took it so much for granted in so many ways that I like want to go back and shake myself a little bit. But that being said, it created the anthropologist I am today. And yeah. so, you know, even if I wasn't maybe fully aware of it at the time, it was seeping into my bones in some way. Um, and uh, I think, you know, one of the things about working collaboratively is I still kind of tend to work with the same people I did my PhD with and through them, the people that they did their work right. with. So it's this beautiful kind of unfolding network of people where you had a handful of people you worked with. So like for me, it's Faira Aragueta, who works on the exhumation of civil war graves in Spain. So she's working on post-conflict, which is kind of post-conflict and heritage is kind of the area I'm in. So she works on kind of post-conflict societies and she's continuing to do that. I worked at Magda Bucic, who she works in kind of um, heritage, the question of heritage in Eastern and Central Europe. And then kind of through these kind of people, you then work with their people as well. And I also, because of Francis's attitude to what anthropology was, when I went to Poland, she put me in contact with Polish anthropologists as like her first thing that she did. She was like, you can't go to Poland and not speak to local anthropologists. Like, that's just not acceptable. <laughs> Which, again, seemed so normal and yet was a really unusual position. You know, I remember having a conversation with Agnieszka Kosienska, who's one of my good colleagues and friends there and she was like yeah no she's like we still get people coming from the states who basically like you know we know they're out working in the same places we work in and they just don't talk to us <laughs> you know so you know you're getting so this is kind of this organic forming of these networks basically mm. which I think is the best way to do it because I had a conversation once with somebody who said, God, you've got like a great network of people. You must be really good at networking. I'm like, no, I'm shit at it. Like, I'm, I'm genuinely terrible at it. I go to conferences and I hang out with my friends. 
<laughs> and maybe if there's drink involved, I will make inappropriate jokes around senior people. <laughs> that's essentially the extent of it. That's interesting, right? Because like, cause actually what you're doing is like the definition of networking, right? Building support, mm -hmm. building networks. However, we have, I don't think I have been to, and I'm talking about this, like a single conference that is anything other than just like a waste of money. Okay, maybe that's not true. Not a single one. But most of the time, it's like the only thing they're good for is to see your friends. Like, yeah. I mean, this is, I, oh God, this, this intersects with so many other things. Like I do love conferences for getting to see new, new work happening mm -hmm. as well. Right. But like, this is part of this ongoing kind of uh, internal struggling I'm have with, having with the politics of citation. We don't get to cite that work, right? We can't treat it yeah. as serious because of the mm -hmm. conference paper, despite the fact that the majority of people giving those conferences papers, especially at international conferences, they're going to struggle to get that work published mm -hmm. because they're not mm -hmm. white English speaking American Brits, you know, mm -hmm. like, yeah. so, so it's, it's, there's a, there is a benefit to conferences, but it's undermined by the politics of citation, basically. And yeah. so it does become something that's just either all about this, like aggressive growth networking or hanging out, getting drunk with your pals. <laughs> you know, I choose drunk with pals. <laughs> um, and um, but that being said, one of the things that um, so Thayda, Magda and myself started working on this particular question of traces when we were kind of coming out of our PhDs, we were all working with this idea and we were like, do you know what? We just want to get money to work on this. <laughs> like, we think this is interesting. We think it's more interesting as beyond anthropology. We think people are working on this idea in other disciplines. Like, wouldn't it be great if we had money to like dig into this? So we started doing all these um, conference panels. So we started with like one in 2016, one in 2018. Um, and then during the pandemic, we'd done these like three distinct conferences. And we'd met some really interesting people through these and people who we were still in contact with. Then we had our own kind of, you know, these kind of networks of people who we knew and through knowing us, where they were brought into contact. And we were the th three of us were like, fuck it, let's apply for a network funding thing. Like, you know, this is this is good work that needs to be done. And so we're going to do it. And we're not going to wait around to be invited to something. We're going to, you know, create it ourselves. So basically, we worked with seven other people, all early career academics, mm -hmm. um, all spaced across Europe. Again, this kind of connection of people. So like, you know, Thyra knew Lee Douglas and Lee Douglas came in from Portugal. Magda knew Tina Palis and Tina Palis came in from, you know, Saigon came in from Turkey via kind of work he was doing in Poland that I was familiar with. Like, so all these kind of, you know, people who we had in this broad thing and we ended up with nine of us putting together this network application for this big chunk of money that the EU gives. It's like, half a million over four years, which for oh, a network yeah. is like, <laughs> basically they're giving it to you to hold meetings and produce like stuff out of those meetings. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's a really very clear network grant. And we put it together and we're slightly strategic about it. So we went and we looked up, you know, the networks that were out there. We worked out that most of them had this thing called an MOU online, a memorandum of mm -hmm. organization or understanding. understanding. <laughs> And um, we worked out based on the application we had and the structure of the MOUs that most of the MOUs were just the application 
slightly adjusted. So we read through them all to figure out the language of this application. And then myself, Tyra and Magda mainly wrote the application in this kind of EU English. And then we sent it out to other people within this group of nine to like work on specific areas or update it. You know, it was, mm-hmm. so it was this really like collaborative process of writing, um, which also then collaboratively shaped what we wanted to do as a network. And we were basically like, let's do wish fulfillment, right? If we had all this money, what would we as early career academics want out of a network like this? And so we wrote that. And then as a kind of justification for what we wrote, we said, look, there's so many like of these things out there that go on and on about how they want to empower early career academics, but they're all senior academics writing it. Like nobody Mm. in charge is actually in this group of people and things have changed drastically in the last 10 years. The advantage of us putting this together is we are that group of people. (laughs) So this is us telling you what we need. So give us money and we'll do it. And and we got it, which was wild. (laughs) I mean, that's amazing. I know. And still to this day, sometimes I'm like, wow. <laughs> so we're we're finishing up year two now. And one of the nicest things about it has been that, like, you know, it's grown to be nearly 200 people in this network, which is fucking insane. We have these like fantastic events all over Europe, um, which are you know, they're all about kind of talking to people in those areas rather than kind of just imposing this one singular version of what academia looks like. Um, and we're beginning to produce work out of it that's really interesting. Wait, what is the network again? I, I think you mentioned it. Place as a research agenda for climate change, social justice, and technology studies. It is very broad. Um, there's like four working groups. So, well, five working groups. There's a dissemination working group. Um, but there's one for technology studies, one for climate change, one for uh, social justice. And then there's a kind of overarching ethics and methodologies working group. So part of the distinction of what we wanted to do was we wanted to bring together not just anthropologists working on trace, but like essentially social studies and humanitarian disciplines that are using this concept, but to talk from the very beginning about it as a ethical concept. So, you know, not just the kind of analytics of what trace is, but because of the kind of nature of trace as an analytical concept, it demands a certain ethical and methodological working from us. Can you um, describe a little bit or talk a little bit about trace? Yeah, so this is uh, currently an ongoing debate with (laughs) So I'm going to give you my version. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The one true version. This is how the media works. If you're the first one to get your story out there, that's well, the story that's going to stick. We're currently starting to work on the edited volume. That will be the first of like a series that's of books. Um, and so myself, Magda and Lee Douglas are going to be writing the introduction for it. And there's been some like very interesting conversations <laughs> on traces because of that. Um, I would say it is a particular... Um, material presence or uh, physical presence or linguistic presence or uh, memorial presence in the, it's, I'm going to say the word presence formerly in time, in the present that makes it so that you have to talk about the past and the future at the same mm-hmm. time. It's right. this kind of temporally unfocused object that demands a sort of engagement with often destruct destroyed pasts Mm -hmm. or kind of complicated fractured futures and it demands that engagement in the present so a really good example of it is you know um from my own work 
there's uh, a whole period of Polish history, for example, called Axia Wisła, which is this period of relocations, forced relocations and kind of ethnocide that happens just post-World War II. And it is a moment where people deemed Ukrainian, which is done in a very bizarre way. They're moved from one side of Poland to the other or else moved out of Poland into Ukraine. Um, and it's this deeply traumatic uh, kind of Polonizing process um, that happens post-World War II. And it leaves this incredibly complicated legacy because it's not really spoken about very openly until relatively recently. Kind of since 2012, there's been a lot more conversations about this. Since the Russian invasion of Ukraine in 2014, that conversation has gotten bigger. And obviously, since the current conflict, this is now, you know, a really big conversation. But it targets specific ethnic groups within Poland, um, you know, things like Lemko, uh, Ukrainians, Belarusians, Tatars, like all this kind of uh, diversity of ethnic groups within Poland get tarred with this brush of being this one specific ethnicity, and that that's enough to justify their removal. The idea was that you would move them from the kind of ethnic enclaves of the east into the recovered territories in the west, which is previously Silesian, kind of maybe German territories. And in doing that, you would uh, force them to assimilate into a imagined Polish majority. So it's an incredibly um, complex period of time. And when I was doing work, it was one of those things that people tended to talk about as an elision or an or like a, a, a kind of a gap. So, you know, people would say things like, oh, when the Eastern Orthodox went away. And that was recognized as there was a particular period when they all went away together and maybe they didn't go away. <laughs> maybe they were taken. <laughs> as, uh, as the citizenship book for uh, the UK says, there was a famine. <laughs> uh, the UK is really all about there was a famine in its very Although <laughs> there was a famine country. <laughs> um, so yeah, so instead of having a really coherent historical moment, what you get is you get these little traces in the present that speak not just to this period, but to other periods of ethnic genocide and ethnocide and conflict. So you know, there's maybe uh, in the graveyards, there's these empty graves where there's no headstones on them. And that's because they were Ukraine, uh, they were supposedly Ukrainian families who were moved during Axia Viswa. Nobody's there to look after the graves. The grave markers were generally iron. Iron was an incredibly rare resource. So people were taking these markers to kind of survive. Um and then this kind of trace evokes other traces with it. So this also evokes the legacy of the Holocaust in the area where you have Jewish graveyards that are completely dismantled by the Nazis coming through the area and gravestones that are destroyed or are put underneath to pave roads, all these like horror. So, so in telling about one particular gap or co complex material present, you actually end up telling all these different traces. Um, of, of stories of the past, but also through that, you end up kind of evoking these fragmented futures because part of that discussion is, well, is there a version of a multi-ethnic Poland in the east of Poland? Is there a version of a kind of Jewish return? Is Jewish return something to be concerned about? You know, so these are essentially temporally dislocated uh, phenomenon that occur in the present and and almost like ghosts, I often think of them as quite spectral. Mm -hmm. You know, they they kind of force us to engage with these kind of absences that that shape our lives. Um, so, 
you know, within the work that the network is doing, you've got people like myself and Magda who maybe work in more heritage and, and material cultures stuff like that's mm-hmm. what we're interested in. But then you have, um, oh, a fantastic, actually, he's a historian from Portugal, a guy called Victor Barros, um, who's working on Afro-descendant Portuguese uh historian like he's he's basically writing a history of uh this particular magazine uh from the 1920s oh, wow. which is this like amazing uh magazine written by some really important afro-descendant thinkers in portugal that kind of got you know got lost in the history of right. portugal and it, it's it kind of speaks to that question of Portuguese colonies, uh, the question of like how the revolution in Portugal is often represented as a kind of anti-fascist revolution, but it's also an anti-colonial revolution. Mm-hmm. Starts in the fucking colonies, you know. Um, and it, it's, it's so again, it's this like one particular thing that then you end up with all these kind of fragmented traces. And I think the traces are really, and this is where the me- methodology and the ethics of it come from. Mm-hmm. It's not an unbiased thing. It's it's a t- it's it tells multiple stories, mm-hmm. and what story you choose to trace is very much so an ethical decision. Um, so the methodology it demands is a methodology that has to be premised on a really clear ethical engagement with what you're doing. You can't do it without starting from the ethics, and that's mm-hmm. what makes it really interesting for academics because I think there's this problem right now um, where as we become more aware of things like the colonial pasts of all of our disciplines there's a kind of fatigue creeping in when people Mm -hmm. talk about ethical working um and what i like about the trace is it says ethics isn't something separate to the work we do ethics is at the very core of our methods um and it's an analytical thing yeah you know it's 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 valid to have to have it as a an analytical perspective 100 percent. yeah yeah and i think like you know, sort of going back to when we were all doing the PhD, it feels like in in your utopian cohort, maybe we didn't feel this as much, but like we were, I feel like we were at this like precipice where people were about to start engaging with these ideas of who we are as researchers. But like, I was still told I was a native anthropologist, you know, like we were still at that <laughs> Amy is covering am, her face and laughing. I mean, yeah. <laughs> it was it was truly shameful because I feel like if I went into an anthropology department today and was like, I'm a native anthropologist, they'd be like, oh, that's like, that's you know, like derogatory. Do you know what I mean? I'm going to say, I wish that was true. But unfortunately, the concept of native anthropologist hasn't disappeared. Oh, no. <laughs> um... oh, how? In 2023, we have the internet. Like, who is using this terminology? And God damn I, I remember it in one of our um, research, what, what were they called, Nantara? The ones that we did with Peep Peep. Um, the seminars? or the Methods, com- the methods. research methods seminars. Maureen and I brought this up, actually. Because we were having this discussion about, like, oh, you know, like, who are you in the field? Your positionality, you know, and... Like, that was never actually a discourse. Like, I feel like it was, like, we have No, to... no, so this was the thing, right? We had to... We have to examine it. Well, exactly. So, like, we were made to mm-hmm. read some article. I don't remember what it was. And I remember it was, like, it... I remember thinking, okay, this is quite facile. It's not incorrect, but it's very much, like, about, like... 
I'm coming from a university as a man, and I have these privileges, which is very good. That's that's wonderful. But like Maureen and I were like, look, when we go into the field, we are different. We yeah. are queer. We are, or you know, maybe not even like something beyond. We, you know, and we were, and we started to talk about like you know what, you know, the fact that our being there asking questions is already affecting mm-hmm. the situation. So how do we decide? How to present? How do you know? And it was immediately shut down as like, well, there was objectivity. Yeah, it was. I remember having these this these conversations in the space because I feel like the more like visibly different folks in that cohort. So like you, me, who else? There were a couple of other like Southeast Asian folks as well. Like women. (laughs) (laughs) Well. Not even the women, right? Not okay. all women. I was going to say, not in my cohort. We were a majority. <laughs> no, we had... Okay, so our Actually, we had also women. What I'm saying <laughs> is, like, not the white people did not have to deal with this. But, like, who are you, both in the field and in the institution, was, like, a question that I was asked all the time. Mm-hmm. And, like, I had such a problem with that. And I remember asking Paro, I remember talking about this with you guys. It's like, all of these white people who are so interested in brown and black folks, like, why are we not asking them what makes you so interested? Why are you going to these places and asking people like, like weird questions? And like, a lot of them had inappropriate relationships with people oh. in their field sites. Do you know what I mean? Where it was just like, this feels, this feels weird. You're like, desire to go to these places and do the thing that you're doing feels weird and we're not questioning it you're coming back with all these like funny stories about like hookups or this or that or whatever and that feels awkward to me and like i don't understand how this is not part of an ethical conversation when i have Mm. ad nauseum about what it means to be a sri lankan american talking to sri lankans in the uk yeah trusty um as a, she's a sociologist called Tracy Macmillan Mac, Cartum. Um, she's based in the US, but she's um, so she's a black woman. She's a MacArthur genius grant person. You know, really fantastic work. Mm-hmm. Wrote a really really good book on like education called Lower Ed, which is really worth reading. Um, but she has this phrase where she says that um, she actually wrote a she's I think a correspondent for the New Yorker now, and she wrote this article which was about like how her success is always limited by how well other people can imagine the possibility of her mm. her field site. Yeah, um, and it's something that I know from colleagues who aren't white, like they like I've I've seen you know people like Vindia tweet that <laughs> that like it's such a that like there's this kind of and then, like, that is the thing. There is still an imagination of what an academic is supposed to look like and what an anthropologist is supposed to look like. Yeah. And so much of your success is going to be dictated by how people fit you into their imagination. And that is ridiculous. So that's still a kind of and it shows up in spaces like this, right, that, you know, actually, yeah, that that, that question of why are you here is important for anyone who's going to do field work anywhere. Yeah, sure. And yet it's only asked of people who are seen to be like non-normative and therefore they right. need to justify right. you know also, their space here it also shapes the way people talk to you right mm. that's something I think mm-hmm. is also not talked about is that like you know it was assumed that i'm going into this field site and i should be able to have access to all these things and you're like well actually like you know people also yeah. but yeah, yeah, absolutely 
that you were talking about that to me that's really interesting i mean i i w- i could talk about ethics and things over I, I work now you know for better or worse in like you know public international health anthropology right and I have to go through all kinds of ethical things which i'm just like just, but um uh okay side note I, i'm not saying that there shouldn't be ethics considerations yeah. Exactly. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. I'm just saying, like a lot of times, it's completely empty. And there really, there's some really good articles that have come out recently. Steve Nugent, Steve Nugent, back in 2006, wrote a really good article about like paperwork becoming an excuse for not doing the ethical work mm, while you're in the exactly. state. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Which yeah, I yes. Yeah. And I'm, you know, I'm slowly like trying to gather people within the WHO to say, <laughs> Let's rethink. Let's, uh, but you know, it's a big institution. But what I was going to ask was like, you know, you raised this amazing point which i wish like we had more time to talk about around you know the sort of you know the ethics um being inseparable mm. and integral integral to the work that we do mm. one does and could you talk a little bit about that with trace because you mentioned a little bit right the that even the definition of trace is something that has its own traces, perhaps. <laughs> also, you know, has has its own. You're not you're not all on the same page. Yet you are still mm-hmm. together, and you're moving together. What is that experience like? How do you not understand? It fluctuates wildly between deeply, deeply satisfying and deeply, deeply frustrating. <laughs> <laughs> um, I can't wait. Yeah, I don't get to go to all the events because there's quite a lot of them and we prioritize, you know, getting people who are going to benefit from them there. So I I only go to a handful of events every year and I generally come back from them with this like elated floating feeling of like, you know, this is how intellectual exchange is meant to work. You know, you're meant to get into a room with a bunch of people who have a shared interest, but not a shared opinion. (laughs) I think, you know, you're meant to just chat. And when you finish that meeting, you all go out for a dinner and you chat there and then you go for a drink and you chat there and then you go back to bed and you're like, oh my God, my brain is wide awake and I can't (laughs) stop thinking and I'm going to rewrite that thing and do this thing. Um, And it's always productive, even if it's not productive in the way that you think it's going to be. Um, So I have this like, you know, I come back from these meetings and I'm like elated and I have like, you know, conversations with people about things that we're producing and I'm, I'm elated and I get this like, it's a euphoric feeling, right, of being like, this is a version of academia that I love. This is a collaborative to get like really bullshitty, like, you know, Rancière has this idea. (laughs) (laughs) Oh. Okay, keep going, keep going. <laughs> yeah, this idea of dissensus, that it's not just about consensus. Actually, consensus can be incredibly uh you know, um I'm making an awkward face here because I can't think it can be incredibly foreclosing of opportunities. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, I don't know about you guys, I was involved in anarchist politics back in the day, and who oh boy, that's an example of how consensus sometimes works for some people, not everyone. <laughs> um, so in fact, what Ranciere said is like dissensus, this kind of productive disagreement can be equally as like, uh, it, it's a radical approach to thinking about doing things and making ideas and, and, and concepts and how they work. Um, and I think that's the feeling I get from a lot of those things is that I don't think everyone leaves those meetings or those events with a single shared opinion about what we're doing, but I think everyone leaves having their work enriched by that Mm -hmm. conversation and Mm -hmm. what happened. And I think ideally for me, that's what collaboration is. It's not everyone doing the same thing. It's everybody getting something from those collaborative interactions that trans, you know, so having that kind of shared 
there has to be some shared conceptual conceptual groundwork otherwise it's complete chaos so this kind of idea that there's a kind of ethics inherent in trace that's the shared consensus that we have you know mm-hmm. that's that's the conceptual groundwork that we're all working from where we go with that is radically different and people use it in very different ways but what it is is it's an incredibly productive place to work from and that's what collaborative work should be i think there's been a kind of real um following out of collaboration mm-hmm. where it's seen as a bunch of people who think the same thing getting together and writing an article that's not collaborative like it is collaborative right you're you are working collaboratively but you're not it's not it's not challenging it's not yeah. it's not doing something that we don't already do in academia you know um i mean it's also as i said it's also incredibly frustrating because also you're basically herding cats <laughs> and you know last year in particular I don't know how much I want to say about this, um, but there was an issue with there's meant to be administrative support provided by the university and, and the grant pays for that. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a real crisis right now. Actually, I will say this. There's a real crisis right now in universities where for years they have massively underpaid and undervalued their administrative staff who tend to be predominantly female um, and they can't hire at the moment. You know, oh, wow. Uh, if you're a secretarial expert, if you're a financial uh, administrative expert, there are places that are going to pay you better than a university and respect you more. So you're going to go to those places. So universities are in a real, like they're finding it really tough to hire admin staff at the moment, not senior admin, like this is, you know, general admin positions. Um, And so last year there was a period of six months where I was left with no admin support and I had to do all the administration of the grant myself, but I don't actually get any buyout for this grant because my university don't get paid money to replace me. So I had to do it on top of my my full time job. (laughs) Um, And it was a real labor of love because I hate admin. Um, and I was doing, you know, budgeting and communication stuff that I've just not been, mm. I've not been trained how to do. So I was having to pick it up on the job. But there was administrators in the department who were doing overtime work to help me because I'd asked and they were kind women who didn't right. need me to have a breakdown. <laughs> um, but there was no structural support for that. So that was pure chaos. That period, I think, was maybe the most difficult period where I genuinely felt like maybe I couldn't hold it all together and you know, was, was trying to convince somebody else to take over the chair of it. Because all I was doing, I felt like I was just a, a, I was just doing administrative work. I was, I was this kind of, um, low-level manager for an intellectual project I was really engaged by um and so that was but it also was kind of maybe a good thing for me to experience on some level because it did remind me that there's a certain chaos to this kind of collaboration and therefore it can't happen without support you know Mm. you can't expect somebody who has a full-time academic job to lead a kind of radically collaborative group of Mm. people without some sort of systemic support for that because mm-hmm. it it requires so much administrative agility yeah. capacity and understanding that you won't be trained with that as an academic so you you need kind of some somebody who is an expert in that to support it and i mean this is a this is going to be a big problem for universities going forward is they have so undervalued this particular cohort mm-hmm. of staff that big grants are going to start collapsing because they can't be run without this level of expertise administrative expertise you know um but so yeah so i think working collaboratively for me it's been it's it's 
it's how I think about it has transformed over the years, particularly mm-hmm. through running this network. Um, and I think I've gotten to a place where I both see the deep frustrations and difficulties of it. And I understand why not everyone can do it. Mm-hmm. But I also think there's something really transformative about, you know, starting from a place of saying, okay, we have this vaguely shared concept that we all kind of start from. And now my work is going to be transformed by engaging with you. And we're probably going to write some stuff together and put some stuff together, but we're also going to carry this into our own individual working. Mm-hmm. And that's a kind of really good, I think, challenge to how we think of academia. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess my sort of follow-up question with all this, I mean, yeah, so so many good points. But like, <laughs> do you see this shift like that you're bringing from this network do you see Mm. that showing up in the institution and is there space for that to show up Hmm. I would say not yet not at the moment but maybe in the future okay Um, that's incredibly hopeful yeah that is very (laughs) I'm not saying cynically I'm saying no no that's like a very neutral statement sorry I think (laughs) if you I think if you look at the kind of people who are joining academic departments now, mm-hmm. at least in anthropology, I can't speak to other disciplines, but within right. anthropology, um, there's a lot of us who don't like how we work and are looking for alternatives. That's and awesome. I think that as we become more established within our departments and we have more of a kind of say in how things are done, these kind of ways of working can be prioritized. Mm. Um, you know, I think there's there there's structural changes that will need to happen. And in order for those structural changes to happen, unfortunately, you need people in senior positions pushing for those structural mm-hmm. changes. Mm-hmm. So, you know, prime example, uh, edited volume isn't considered as valuable as a single author text. There's no reason for that to be the case. The majority of people are going to read edited volumes and not single authored text. Like, right. you know, I know for a fact that there will be maybe like 50 people who will really engage with my book and then a bunch of students will be forced to read it by my colleague. (laughs) (laughs) Versus an edited volume is something that lots of people will will read. So there's there is no legitimate reason for devaluing edited volumes within kind of research excellent frameworks or whatever, other than we dismiss the idea that research excellence can equate to multiple people working and thinking together. Um, so those are the kind of changes that need to be structurally pushed for mm. from a kind of senior place. Um, things about like how we supervise students, uh, things about how we hire people, um, what we value when we're putting advertisements out there for new members of departments, mm-hmm. um, things about how we teach, teaching more collaboratively, doing more team teaching. All of these kind of structural changes will have knock on effects eventually. Mm-hmm. The eventually is the thing I don't know how long that could take. We keep joking about your PhD experience, but like I've heard tons of experiences like mine and I've heard only your experience like yours. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So it is so nice to hear that like you're paying it forward in a way Mm -hmm. that like hopefully that is contagious. That is like the next generation of academics and people will less and less have experiences like ours. And more so have experiences like yours. So I, I think it makes sense, right? Because like everything that, you know, that 
I don't know you as well as I thought, but you know, from what you've described about your work, like you know, you think about the ethics. Mm. You think about, you know, even like the morality, right, of what you, in in your supervision, right? And I think that we, you know, we recently did another interview with someone where we sort of asked this question about like, well, you know, how do you manage it? And she's, you know, they said, um, you know, it's about being honest and sort of showing your own vulnerability. And I think like that's also what you're bringing into this relationship. And I wish I, you know, sometimes I think like, you know, every academic should also have mandatory like therapy. <laughs> like if they're going to supervise. They do have a very good therapist. <laughs> yeah, there you go. But, but you know, I, I think it, it makes sense who you are, like the, yeah. you, the networks you're building, the students you are, are molding, whether or not they go into academia, like, I, you know, it makes sense that you would have such an ethical approach to it. And it's, yeah. really, it's, really, it's really heartening to hear because yeah. that isn't always the case, but hopefully more and more. <laughs> we are at time. I'll also say that. Oh, good. <laughs> so I'm so sorry. Like, <laughs> I was like, oh, no. Um, we've got a million more questions, but I just wanted to say, because we're at time, do you want to plug your book that's coming out soon and then we'll let you go? Yes. So I'm currently doing the indexing, which is a task that I fucking hate. <laughs> I have read my own work so frequently oh. right now that is becoming like just like rhubarb, rhubarb, rhubarb. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but it is due out uh, in September, October, uh, depending on when the print run is. Uh, it is called Spectral Borders, uh, History, Neighborliness and Displacement on the Polish-Belarusian Frontier. Um, so that is coming out. Uh, also, I will plug my network because yes. I, actually, that's a very important thing. Uh, we have a website called Tracks dot online, I think is the, the, the uh, address. But if you look up... T-R-A-C-T-S. And then if you look up cost action, that will bring you to us. Absolutely. Um, that's the name of the funder. Um, so that will link you to a lot of the work that's happening in the network. We're currently working on a very, very, very cool online tool, uh, which is going to be a counter atlas of trace. Um, and the beta version of that is launching in October with a view to having the final version in like early 2024. And I've seen versions of it. It's, it's a really cool visualizer of like the different trajectories you can take from one piece of work that's happening in the network. So that's going to be really, really cool um, when it's up and running. It's currently in that like nightmare development stage that I didn't realize was such a nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, let me think. Is there anything else? No, I think those are the two things probably. Um, yeah, I'm about to go on research leave and I'm going to be doing um, some more work in Ireland, which is going to be really, really, really good fun. <laughs> oh, amazing. Oh, that's great. Thank you so much. This was a great conversation. I'm so glad that we got to reconnect. Me too. Um, I, I don't think we've had a conversation since, what, 2009? <laughs> yeah. Which, yeah. Again, like for all that, that PhD year was great, that master's year was insane. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that master's years just being as like one of the best years I've had in London ever. No, it was and so it, much fun, but also pure chaos. <laughs> yes, yes. And I feel like that was my takeaway from Goldsmiths. It's just like Goldsmiths is chaos in the best possible way. I will say just like art installation things happening all over the place. 
yeah yeah like the anthropology department was its own building and sort of like normal compared to whatever was happening in the other departments yeah I think like whatever uh, like I definitely think of my time in Goldsmiths as a time of like beautiful productive chaos (laughs) yes Um, and I'm hopefully not cursed (laughs) fingers crossed I don't know well, I'm also hoping that curses do not travel via Zoom because I don't want to be cursed either. You don't know. Yeah. We don't I mean, know. I did, right? take, I did take some burrs home with me, which is 100% the start of every horror movie ever. Oh, oh no. Oh, no. Are you sure that was your doing that? It's like, I'm also a white lady. So, like, so what I'm girl, what's the problem? Yes. <laughs> Wait, are the Irish actually white, though? Yeah, in the, in the horror ecosystem. <laughs> You guys always do the stupid shit. Why did you take the birds? <laughs> and I'm renovating a house. I am like every horror. <laughs> so yeah, if I get... Home, you know that you're not the one who's going to get killed. <laughs> oh no, yeah. It'll be my elderly neighbors downstairs or something. <laughs> That's how this works. <laughs> oh my god. My comedy sidekick. <laughs> conversation with amy hope you enjoyed it it we obviously did from all of the laughing as you can tell um all of the books and authors that she references during the episode we will have a list of them um in the episode description we'll have a link to amy's website as well as the tracks website in the episode description um if you want to get in touch with us, check out our website at www.sorapod.com or send us an email, hello at sorapod.com. See you next time. <laughs>